Welcome to the Making of a Diva podcast. I'm your host, Erica Sherrick. The Making of a Diva podcast celebrates people who have overcome life's challenges and come out on top. Join us each week as we delve into the experiences of influential men and women who have transformed their lives and inspired others to do the same. We will discuss topics of life transition and empowerment. Life can throw us curveballs that force us to reassess our priorities, relationships, and goals. How we navigate these transitions can make all the difference in our personal growth and development. Our guest today talks of the struggles and how he faced his own unique life transition and emerged stronger and empowered. He will share lessons, stories of triumph, and advice for anyone who may be facing a life transition of their own. Note that topics and discussions are from my experience and my guest experiences. This is not therapy, nor is anything discussed a substitute for speaking with a licensed professional. So sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired as we explore the making of a diva. And today we have a special guest. Um, Dan Yaris. Is that how you say it? Yaris? Yaris? Yaharis? The way my dad used to say it, which would be um, embarrassing, was Yaris rhymes with Paris. Did he really say that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. -uh. Oh, yeah. Okay. And that's that's why I'm gay. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't my mother that made me gay. It was my dad because of just saying that. But continue. Okay, so like I said, we have this um, special guest today, mm. Daniel Yaris. Mm. Um, and runs this, with Paris. This, this is my cousin that I spoke of in like the very first episode that was supposed to be my first guest. Mm. And, and what I, happened? It didn't happen because, well, um, mm. <laughs> he's a bitch. Mm. So... Mm. He's here now, though, and this is going to not, I mean, we are going to talk about um, his trauma in life and some of the, some of the, um, the things that he has gone through and has overcome being a small town boy moving to the big city. You're living in a lonely world. You took a midnight train going, going anywhere. This is also going to give you a little insight on our phone conversations daily. So, Dan. And I think Eddie, maybe insight into you as well. <laughs> this might give an insight into me. Dan, Daniel. Yeah. Danny. Yeah. D. Triple D. Triple whatever. D, whatever. Okay. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um... Hi, uh, my name's Daniel, for those that uh, don't know me. And um, I was born in Illinois, but at the age of two, picked up and left, went to Minnesota. I at didn't two, you went, did you bring your parents with you? I did bring my parents with me. And then we lived on a Chippewa um, Indian reservation land um, in the Chippewa National Forest. Daddy got a job there. Daddy went to college for, um, I mean, back in the day, you could get like a degree in recreation. That word kind of means a different phrase now. But back then, I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of movement to be, you know, like one with the earth and um, uh, conservation. And dad was what part of, what was it called again? Outward bound? Mm-hmm. 
And so that was part of why um, he took the family from Illinois to Minnesota because he got a job on this reservation land, which also was um, working with a nearby college, um, Bemidji State University. And so people could come out from the college to this reservation land and they could do nature field studies and other stuff that has to do with the trees and the dirt and the likes and the mosquitoes. And um, he was there as being like an administrator and manager of all of this. And so long story short, yes, Northern Minnesota, 40 degrees below zero. I grew up with that. Okay, but then you moved. Yes, St. Moved Louis. To St. Louis. So there's a theme here, if um, our listeners at home are catching, um, on M states. So, well, Illinois is not an M state, but Minnesota then moved to Missouri and was there for about three years because I had three years of high school there. And then senior year, um, oh, we up and moved to Montana. And so senior year was in Montana and then my college was in Montana. And then at some point moved to Massachusetts for three months, lived with an uncle, Uncle Bobby, um, before I came to the next letter in the alphabet, which is N for New York. And I ended up in New York City. So what made you, I mean, what made you pick pick New York? Well, I went to film school in Montana, Montana State University of Bozeman. Um, and when I basically graduated, it's either you go to New York or L.A. And most people went to L.A. And I was planning on going to L.A., but uh, my car got into an accident. Oh, and not only did it get into the accident, I got into the accident. I was going to say, because. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was driving. Um, and anyway, uh, yeah, it was like a snowstorm and a semi truck went past me. And then it's like I ran into the railing. And anyway, you know, I just didn't really get it fixed. And uh, anyway, uh, and at the time, and I don't know too much how much Montana has changed, but you know, it was a lot of minimum wage jobs. So it's like, do I want to spend like the next year trying to like save up money to get this fixed? And anyway, um, I was like, you know what, I'll go to New York. I knew someone who was in New York. Uh, they told me that there was a job that they could get me lined up at Letterman and, um, you know, being a uh, production assistant. And so I was like, you know what, I'll just go to New York. It wasn't saving up money fast enough in order to present myself uh, to the New Yorkers. So um, I went to Massachusetts, lived with my uncle, uh, Bobby, um, and uh, um, worked at Macy's, got an award for being a salesman, which um, in that three months, which I I won, um, what was the gift that I got? Was it like a vacuum cleaner? And what I realized is all it really took to sell was just to kind of like... um, make eye contact with customers and sort of ring things up and like not avoid them. I noticed a lot of my coworkers would just kind of like avoid people. And that was giving me insight into city life. Like self-preservation is avoiding everyone around you. So, so, um, so I want to know how is your transition from being. Which transition from, are we talking about? The, tra- the transition from Montana to New York. Well, um, yeah. Um, I like to joke with people and say, oh, New York, it's just like Montana, except where there were once mountains, there's now buildings. And where there 
I see now people, there was once cows, but yeah, I'm not getting any uh, laugh track there. Um, <laughs> thank I you. can thank add you. one if you really <laughs> want. <laughs> thank you. But yeah, I mean, uh, things operated differently in the city. That's for sure. Um, you know, people would just, you know, they would be a little bit more blunt to your face. I recall being on the subway and seeing this guy who was a black guy and he had a huge afro and his um, afro was, he had reddish hair. What color? Um, what what year was this? Oh, um, what year was it? Uh, I moved uh, there to the uh, summer of 1998 because later on that year it was... I could listen to Prince. We're going to party like it's 1999. And it was 1999. So it was the summer of 1998. And I remember looking at this guy on the subway and kind of like having this little fantasy played in my head that, oh, if maybe if I was black, I would look like him just because of the red hair. I was just transposing my hair onto his hair because he had natural red hair. And anyway, I didn't realize I was staring. And at some point, he said something to me like, you know, an expletive, like, you know, what do you want? And then his friends were all looking at me and I realized, oh, people are reading me faster than they do in a small town. And, uh, and then at some point when I would go back to Montana, I would realize, oh, this is the difference. Because then I would see people from Montana differently because I'm like, everyone is staring at me. Whereas in New York, like, no, everyone is processing the information faster. So they see you, they look at you, they look away, unless they're really wanting to talk to you, like in a nightclub, and then they're like really looking at you. Then you're like, oh, you want something from me. Whereas in Montana, if they're just looking at you, it's like, yeah, a whole paragraph is like maybe coming together. Um, but yeah, um, just uh, the, the the time frame of looking at people, I realized changed. Did you feel, I mean, when you lived in Montana, did you, you know, just because you did move around, you know, Mm -hmm. a little bit, did you feel comfortable in Montana? Were those your people or? Oh gosh. Um, I know this is a loaded question. No, uh, not at all. Someone as a child who I, um, felt a kindred spirit with was Madonna. Now, surprise, surprise, a lot of gay men got that same memo. And I'll tell you, one one of the main reasons was, well, because, you know, she danced in the world of um, playing with uh, sexuality and when people are trying to come to terms with their sexuality. And what does that mean when you see this woman who's so confident about it? and she's dabbling with everything, you're like, oh, yeah, um, I'm going to be like her. And uh, she also had this evolution where she was always changing her looks and changing the way she would sort of present herself being a chameleon. And so for me, going from, you know, Indian Reservation to a couple other towns in Minnesota to then the big city of St. Louis and then going on to Montana with each move I had – there would be a way that I would be thinking about how am I going to present myself differently? Because with each place that I lived, there was always a 
all the stuff that kids go through in terms of like teasing one another, tormenting one another. And with each place you moved, there was kind of like a different sort of culture of, uh, yeah, I mean, just basically different culture, but different things that kids would tease each other about or rib each other about or. And so when I was like trying to figure out how to present myself to people, if that one town I lived in, I was very introverted, then the next place we would move to, I would be, I would say, okay, I'm going to try to be less introverted and more extroverted. And then if that didn't work with me being extroverted, it's like, okay, well, um, I'm, they're making fun of me a lot, um, different kids. So now when I go to this next place, I'm going to make fun of myself first before they can. And so with each move, I kept on sort of trying to evolve with my defense mechanisms. And... Did you, but did, I mean, was mm. there any place where, you know, you could just be yourself? Was mm. there a place that you could just be yourself or did you always have to kind of read to try to figure out how to be? Well, the theater. <laughs> I can be myself in the theater by being other people. But no, I mean, I would say there was a lot of me trying to figure it all out. And so... I mean, when I think of how I was initially raised, you know, we lived in the forest and it was at a time where, you know, parents didn't want to like helicopter their children so much. So it would be like, go play in the woods, just be back before sundown. And so I would just find myself in the trees and what I would the hear outhouse. from other, huh? Or the outhouse. Or the outhouse. I mean, what I would hear from, um, other family members over the years is, hey, Dan, remember when you were growing up as a kid and you used to like to sing to the trees? And I was like, did I do that? Yeah. And then I, I, yeah. yeah. And then I thought about it and I was like, why did I like to sing to the trees? And then I recalled at some point, you know, learning about, you know, we're taking in oxygen, we're putting out carbons and then, you know, um, the trees are, I wanted the trees to keep growing. So I was like nature boy. So my first version of me, Madonna 1.0, was um, Nature Boy, um, uh, Nat King Cole's Nature Boy. I'm just going out, singing to trees, singing to birds. And then when you move into a town, and then I was apparently singing to the monkey bars. Um, and it's like, uh, what is up with this kid? Let's beat him up. And it's like, uh, hey, Danny, what were you doing over there? And I'm like, oh, I was just singing to the monkey bars. Why you want to do that? And then just they don't even want the answer. They just beat you up. And so, you know, and my parents aren't there to observe like, oh, hey, Dan, maybe you shouldn't sing to the monkey bars, you know. Um, so anyway, I was brought up to be a free spirit. And at some point, you know, you have to learn to evolve with the people around you. And maybe sometimes being too much of a free spirit can come off as um, crazy, but I don't think I was crazy, but you know, um, yeah. If, so when you, when you moved, so when you finally settled into New York, I mean, you're finally on your own. You don't, I'm not, sing, I'm not singing to trees or buildings. <laughs> no, now you're singing to people, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're, you're finally on your own. Yeah, you, you don't have that that safety net of mother and father. And this is true. 
and or even the brothers because you know and i think this is where i have insight you know because you lived with your younger brother for a majority of your time in in dylan and and uh or bozeman correct yeah yeah my younger brother we both um went to the same college together and so we both lived with each other at some point in colleges as well so when you moved away you know you're in the big city now you're by yourself you've you've spent all this time trying to figure out how to be every time you move what was it like when you when you got to new york i mean how did you how did you cope with that well um let's see hmm. parents my parents were also going through the beginnings of a divorce at the time so if there was issues that I had, um, I could tell by talking with them on the phone that they weren't completely eyes on Dan. <laughs> and so, cause they were going through their own thing. And so I wasn't getting all the, the babying attention. And also, I mean, it, you know, people are funny. It's like, you know, here I'm a kid and I, you know, I pick up and leave or a young adult and I, go from Montana to the big city. And then it's like, Oh, still protect me while I'm in the big city. And it's like, well, you chose to leave and go to the big city. So, you know, you got to figure it out for yourself. And so um, I was just starting to learn, Oh, I'm going to have to do this on my own. And part of doing that on my own, I mean, a lot of bad decisions like, Oh, you know what? I'm eventually going to get a better job while I'm here in New York. Cause I got a lot of talent and a lot of pizzazz and everyone thinks I'm special at least back at home. And so I'll just pay for rent off of a credit card, <laughs> you know, and you know, what is APR again? And uh, yeah. And so I was also finding myself going into deeper and deeper debt, right? When I came what, to New York how, city. Just for reference, how old were you when you got to New York? Oh, yes. Reference. I think like, uh, like 24, 25. Okay. And, um, cause I was actually like five years in college. Cause I did switch my major from advertising to, um, theater and then to film and television, um, production. And so, yeah, you know, um, I'm in New York and then I kind of initially took a pause from going full throttle towards, um, a film and television career, which was primarily going to be focused on acting. And I was like, I just need to like figure out a little bit who I am. Because for me growing up, all the different places that we lived, the one constant was, is I would get into a theater program, I would get into plays. And so um, I could have this escapism world. Whereas now that I'm starting my foundation of uh, my future self, it's like, I don't have to escape anymore. I'm in this big city where I heard all growing up, like, if you're a freak, you go to New York City. If you're a freak, you go to the big city. And so now I'm like, oh, I'm here. Now, mind you, my, my plot wasn't I was going to be a big freak. But, you know, you know, you'll I think you can go back in time. And, you know, when people talk about homosexuals um it's like uh, well we don't got any of those in this small town they all go to the big city and so <laughs> guess what i'm in the big city so yeah uh, uh part of the delight of being in the big city was now <clears throat> figuring out more of who i was and not focusing on fantasy 
uh, um, which even though being in the theater is a real job, being an actor is a real job. There's an aspect to all of that, which is um, also escaping a certain amount of reality. Now, I didn't want to escape reality. I wanted to be a part of reality. And I was also a uh, virgin to um, my same sex, even though I, I lost my virginity uh, to a female friend. Well, the actor in me was like, I'm Matthew McConaughey in this moment. Oh. I'm Matthew McConaughey, you know, all right, all right, all right, you know. <laughs> but how did your, like, how did your family take to your, to your acting? Acting is a, is a real career. I mean, it's a real job. It's a real career. Yeah. But because it's based in so much fantasy and, and non-reality, what did the parents and the siblings you know what was their take on okay my son is my brother is in new york trying to do what well i think because growing up it was always a sort of constant with me and being in school plays and uh, making uh short films that you know it was just sort of i guess expected that oh he'll he'll go off and even though they didn't have any um, real ideas on how this all will come together. Um, I was already different enough as it is, you know, oh, he'll go figure it out and it'll probably all work out. And so no one really checked up on me. Like, is this working out for you? <laughs> it's more like, you know what? He's already his own person. It'll probably just work out. And so, yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, there hasn't really been too much uh questioning like is the acting working out have you been in anything lately no it's just kind of like uh it's more like are you happy and it's like yeah i'm happy well then that's good <laughs> and that answers do you that wish, question do you, i mean do you do you wish that they had been more um inquisitive about you know exactly what you're doing in your direction and your planning just because i know your father is very with plans and and it, yeah well direction. there was a yeah, well, um, um, I don't know if you could hear that. That's, uh, um, you know, there's wonderful uh, traffic here in New York. I can't hear um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, I remember there was some pushback in, with my dad of, uh, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Uh, why don't you think of something, a different type of career? But this was like in high school. And, you know, you have the conversation about six or seven times, and then um, – yeah, then the conversation's over because it's like, okay, Dan still wants to go in this direction. But it didn't really hit me what I was embarking on until my last semester of college when I started to realize that, oh, um, I'm actually going to be paying back on all of my college tuition because I went in state because right. I initially thought my parents were going to take care of everything and then when I didn't get a, a approved for a certain um last semester loan because you know I don't know I guess my parents were making too much money for us to get a certain loan um and then it was like oh um yeah well how are we going to do this and um then I figured out how to do it myself and then I was working all the time I was having like five different jobs and I was like oh gosh uh there might not be a complete game plan here. Now, probably if there was more pressure put on me from the beginning, like this is all on you, kid, I probably would have been a little bit more serious in college. 
I'm not saying that I wasn't serious. I always took all of my classes seriously. I never like just uh, sloughed sh- anything off. It, um, and I did have this, uh, you know, this creative spirit that I was always willing to try different things, but I didn't have the fear because I was like, oh, everything's going to work out. And I didn't think about money at the end. And then when it got to the point of like, oh my God, I have to work like five different minimum wage jobs in order to get through this last semester of school. Then it starts coming into focus. Like, um, oh, I guess this is all going to be on me. And then, um, you know, I needed to leave Montana because it's all about proximity. And if you want to be able to make it in the business of film and television, you have to be in one of these major cities, like either LA or New York. And then for commercial work, there's also like Chicago or Minneapolis. But I was like, yeah, um, I already had it decided I'm going to go to New York. And so then when I get in New York, it's like, okay, uh, I realize I I, got to figure this all out. And uh, there was a lot of questions that I probably should have asked before I even got there. But you know what? Half the time, what it's all about is just getting to the proximity of where it is that you want to be and where you need to go. Because at least that's one closer step to... um, reaching your goal so sure what i would have liked to plan things out a little bit better um yeah um i remember i had one instructor love him to death um i won't mention his name he looks like santa claus but i love him to death but i went to him towards uh the end of the school year in college and he wasn't my advisor there was someone else who, who had was my advisor, but he, he was, he was never available for me. So I went to this other guy and he was like, okay, what do you want to meet with me about? And I was like, my career, like, you know, what should I be planning when I get out of college? And he's like, well, you know, you want to be an actor, right? And I was like, yeah. And then he's like, I suggest you put on a cowboy hat, go down to some casting office in LA and put on some knee pads. <laughs> and I was like, knee pads? Yeah! And just tell them I want to be an actor. And I'm like, knee pads? And so I, I I know what he was saying. Like, give blowjobs. Now, I realized that he was joking, okay? And was I had he? A, and what? I had a familiarity with him. I don't want people to freak out that it's like, oh my God, faculty at a school was basically telling students to go give blowjobs. But what he was saying in his way was, I'm not worried about you. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to make this happen. And I was coming out of my shell a lot towards my last years of college. So um, people didn't know I was a homosexual. And um, yeah. Uh, And so um, I'm like, oh, this is not the answer I want is knee pads. This is not I didn't get a degree in giving blowjobs. And I hadn't even given one yet. So I was like, oh, my God, I like I don't have the resume. Um, So, yeah. So let's put it this way. I went from everything is kind of working out for me in school in terms of uh, working in film, getting acting jobs, because, you know, you still have to audition for stuff in school and community college. And I would get those roles, even if I'm not getting paid for anything, but I was getting stuff. And I would have students in the school tell me, like, I wrote this part for you and you're the only person I can think of playing this. And it would usually be offbeat, weird stuff. And I was always game to do it. 
So you kind of have it in your head that, oh, this is all going to kind of work out. And then I get to the big city and then it's like, okay, I have no connections. I don't know anybody. Everybody is moving at a different rate of speed. And now I'm like lost. And so at some point I decided to, instead of fight being lost, to just embrace being lost and okay, figure out kind of like who you are. And so, uh, yeah, I spent quite a bit of time on that. <laughs> yeah. So you're, how did you start making all those connections and stuff and, and building your, your little network and, and your, your group of, your group of friends? Well, uh, the way I started um, building my group of friends in New York is first, uh, I started out with the, the gays, which the gays. Scared, with the gays, which scared me half to death because why did the gays scare you? Oh my god! Well, first I mean, of all, but... you you knew. I mean, you knew that you were gay. Well, yeah, yeah, but it but also then why, just. But then, but, just, but then, why would they scare you? Well, let's just to, just to clarify. There are some people like they knew at the age of six. You know, I I knew that I was gay because of blah 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 blah. I wasn't one of those. Well, and the thing is, is that like for me, uh, I guess like my libido part didn't really start kicking in until I actually like fell for a friend. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, this is what people are talking about. And then even then I'm like, uh, just trying to figure it out because I have to say for the longest part of my life, uh, the largest part of my life as a child, even when I would start feeling sensations, it was like the wind, you know, like, oh, the, the wind is brushing against my my skin in a certain way. Oh, I'm having, I think I'm having an erection. So the first things I was sexually attracted to were like wind, sun, rain. Like, I, I don't recall until maybe a little bit Eric Estrada on chips. I yeah. think there was a little twinkle yeah. in my eye for, oh. But I want to ask you, you know, I want to go back to this being afraid of the gaze thing. Mm. Were you afraid of the gaze because of the unknown? Was it because you didn't well, understand it completely? Well, yeah, because, uh, okay, so one of the first jobs I had was at this restaurant called Ellen Stardust Diner. And it's the home of the singing waitstaff. And basically, I was just going around from like place to place in New York. Oh, because by the way, that that this friend of mine who had a job for me at David Letterman, like, come to New York. I got a job for you at Letterman. Yeah, they they they, they took that all back once I got to New York. And so that was like um, a little dagger. And um, why they decided uh, to like change things, I, I don't know. It was just uh, it, it just was what it was. And so I'm like, I need to get a job. I'm not going to go back to Boston um, to stay with my uncle. And I'm not going to go back to Montana. I got to figure this out. So I got this. So I was just going around from like restaurant to restaurant and just dropping off resumes. And so I, I got this one at Ellen Stardust Diner, home the singing wait staff. And they kind of like, will you sing for us? Because the waiters there sing. And I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, sure. Even though I'm like, uh, I'm not a Broadway performer. I wasn't thinking about singing on Broadway. I wasn't thinking about tap dancing or doing anything on a stage. I was just thinking about theater and film. And so um I get the job there, and then there was a lot of um, flamboyant waiters who worked there. And quickly, you know, they're, like, coming up to me, you know, are you gay? You know, who are you sleeping with? And it was just like, 
like what you know it's like whatever happened to like you know here's an apple pie you know i still had my my midwestern sensibility and now there's like this aggression of like who are you i'm reading you and so then i just started to actually pull back because I'm like, I'm not ready for this. And then there was a lot of people I worked with that would be doing drugs on the job. And it took me the longest time to figure out like, you know, like cocaine, you know, you can maybe smell pot. You can smell if someone is drunk and they start slurring their words. But I didn't understand when someone was necessarily on coke and a lot of waiters would be on coke. And then it was just like, uh, why is this person, why can't they retain any information that I'm telling them? Why is it like they can't <laughs> handle their tables? Why am I, you know, there's money missing from the till. Like what is going on here? So like, there's all this like, crazy mayhem and um one of my managers his name was his real name was peter and i know his last name but i'll just say peter um he was oh gosh he's from puerto rico but he wanted to be called venus and so my manager's name is venus and then um whenever he would see me at work he would be he wouldn't call me daniel he would call me montana bitch so wow. he would be like, Montana bitch, these are your tables over here. And I'm like, uh, okay. And in my mind, once again, the Midwestern part of me is like, um, shouldn't you be calling me by my real name or at least my stage name? But it's like, you know, Montana bitch. And so, um, you know, uh, this is obviously before me too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it was just like a lot of aggression. It was a lot of, um, you know, just people and, and, and you know, so basically I ended up becoming friends with the food runners. Mm-hmm. So like basically all the like uh, the Hispanics, Latinos, you know, um, new immigrants to New York City. I was becoming friends with them because even though there might have been a little bit of communication issue with broken English, at least I felt more comfortable about them because it's like they came there to work and they weren't trying to find themselves. Whereas I felt like with a lot of the waiters, I mean, obviously I was trying to find themselves myself, but it's like they were just very aggressive about their identities and I, I needed to be cut some slack and people were not willing to do that. And so it's like, you know, but at some point I was like, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this all out. And eventually I did. And I still keep a large amount of my Midwestern sensibilities to me. And it's weird because at some point I was like, mm, I guess I'm a little bit more conservative than I, <laughs> than I originally thought here in Montana. Like I'm, you know, I'm ready to break out. I'm very liberal. And then I get to New York City. And I'm like, OK, I'm still liberal, but um, I'm going to use my inside voice a lot. And a lot of people don't have time for the inside voice in New York City. You have to make yourself seen and heard. Otherwise, get out of the room. So what 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 are some of those processes that you went through? I mean, to do you think that you found yourself finally? Well, um, yes. So and what was what was the major turning point and that contributed to that? Oh well, to to be quite honest, because before I was completely dishonest, I would say I spent probably over well over a decade just 
finding some friends. And I know that probably seems like, oh my gosh, what a waste of time. You graduated school, you get to New York City, and then you kind of stop and just work at finding friends. But yeah, that's kind of like what I did is I just wanted to find, and I don't want to use this phrase, but safe spaces. I found friends who I could, you know, hang with, develop. You found your friendships people. with I found my people because you know, like I said before, uh growing up in those different M states, you know, we moved around quite a bit, you know, even though like St. Louis was just the St. Louis area, but in Minnesota there was like four different places. In Montana, there was a couple different places. And so I always kind of felt like I was being uprooted. Even though I had my family, it was like I was always the new student. I was always like introducing myself uh, for the first time, always trying to figure out what the lay of the land was. And then like, do I want to be a part of these people? And a lot of the times I was just like a spectator. And so I was developing friends in New York. But then what really started to make me feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm developing, developing my sense of self is and i won't get into a lot of it but i'll just talk about it briefly is i started doing some workers rights stuff and so um um basically these different uh catering jobs i would have because i ended up joining some different catering companies there would be some um interesting ways of people being paid and um it got to the point where I was just like, you know what, I guess I'm going to do my uh, Norma Ray and um, the Occupy Wall Street stuff was happening. And uh, I was like, uh, and then I also had sort of ended a very impactful relationship, which went went completely downhill and the person was doing lots of drugs. And I was like, oh my God, I can't deal with this. And I kind of had one of these, you know, moments where I'm like, okay, enough is enough. Yeah. I started doing worker rights types, workers right type stuff and attempts at unionizing. And so I was kind of like planning my feet saying, okay, this is where I live. This, these are my jobs. This is what's wrong. This is what's right. And I need to, def I need to say something about this all. And also even um, a place that I lived at, I spent a year in a court over uh, a building that I lived in where everything was dilapidating, everything was falling apart. And I started to learn that I was stronger than I actually realized. So when I was telling you about, you know, you come to New York and, you know, you're staring at someone for too long and then they want to be adversarial with you. I realized a lot of that was also show because I'm living in a building with a bunch of people who there was a good amount of, there was like drug dealers that were living in the building and there were, you know, people with, you know, attitudes and this and that, but nobody was trying to fix the problems in the building. There was pipes that were bursting. There were electrical problems. Apartments were catching on fire. And it's like, okay, I see all this New York bravado, you know, uh, but yet I'm not seeing people demonstrate how they themselves want to fix things. So, you know, the landlords are letting things fall apart. The, the people that live in the building, the you know, they're just like, uh, you know, the landlord's gonna not going to fix it. So why should I care? And then you just see from the top down how everyone starts to not care. And I was like, you know what? I think the, the, the secret power I still have is that caring about things still matters to me. 
and um, I haven't been completely jaded by the city. Um, and yeah, I started to, I'd ask the question in my head and then I would want the answer. And so the, the answer was, if the question was, I don't think this pay is proper. Um, and I think it might be against New York laws and um, state laws and city laws. Let me see if there's an answer to that. And then I make the phone calls. And then when you find out, oh, actually what is being done is against the law. Then it's like, okay, now what do you do? And so that's when I started to tell myself, you know what? I guess I'm a New Yorker now <laughs> because in my mind, New Yorkers stand up for themselves. And now I was standing up for myself and I was standing up for people that I either worked with or lived near, whether they liked me or not. I mean, when I was living in Brooklyn and I took this building, um, the owner, uh, to court. Um, well, first I took him to court. That wasn't getting anywhere. I reached out to um, a, a group that was a part of the United Way that helps tenant advocacy groups. They told me, no, what you got to do is you got to let them take you to court. And I'm like, well, well, I don't want them to take me to court. I want to be the good guy. No, let them take you to court. Just put your money on the side. And then when they go to sue you, you just go right there to the judge and you show them the pictures. There's this, there's this, there's this. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, I got advice on how to work the system, if you will. And the building got ultimately turned over to the city. And there were drug dealers, like I said, that were living in the building. And initially, uh, they thought because I was working in catering and sometimes I would work some private events. And there was one time there was a limousine that drove me home because apparently there wasn't like a, you know, like a, a regular car to drive us home. Um, and if you can visualize, I'm wearing tuxedo pants and a white shirt and I'm coming out of this limo in Flatbush, Brooklyn, which was uh, a very rough, rough neighborhood. How I got there, that's another story. But um, people, are, they thought I was a drug dealer. Because it's like, what is this white boy doing coming out of this limousine in the middle? And so uh, there would there would be like these guys that would, uh, one guy had his dog jump me one day. I'm just walking down the street and then he, I see the guy take the dog off the leash and then he points at me and then the dog just runs um, and it was like a, a pit bull. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like I'm being attacked now by people in my neighborhood. But when I started doing the advocacy work to, uh, you know, help people in and their rent and help. I would go around and have people sign forms about, yes, there are fires that are happening in the building. Yes, there's, um, you know, graffiti, there's damage, there's all this stuff. Because um, I was helping people get rent reductions for their apartments and then also for the building-wide problems. That now these drug dealers were kind of taking to me. And they reinterpreted visually what they saw in me. So before when they saw me wearing black tuxedo pants and a white shirt, and I would have like this, it was called a Manhattan Diary. Basically, it looks like a Bible. It's like a leather bound date book. Um, I mean, now obviously people use their phones to put in their agendas, but this was like a, a leather bound book. So this is, you know, back in like early 2000s. And, you know, there was the ribbon that could separate, you know, the pages as the bookmark. People thought I was a Latter-day Saint. 
So now I went from being drug boy to, oh, he's probably a latter-day saint. And so they thought I was going around trying to do God's work, that I was looking out for people. And this, you know, there was different women who would tell me, oh, we know that you were sent by God, you know, you are one of his angels. And I'm like, I'm just trying to get you to get a rent reduction. Then they, they, they would tell me, you know, we're looking out for you now. And that uh, the guy who owned the building was asking some of the tenants to off me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I, because, because, you know, I was taking him to court and he was going right. to lose the building. And so, yeah, that that's when I guess I started to think like, oh, I, I guess I'm one of the people. <laughs> You're one of them. Even though I'm not selling drugs, I'm, you know, the drug dealers like me. So that makes me feel a lot better because, you know, they're looking out for me, which means I might be able to live another day. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, there was a lot to navigate and. So, you know, I, I come to New York and there's a part of me that's like, oh, I need to find my, you know, gay identity. But in the meantime, I'm just trying to find friends. And most of my friends ended up being Korean adoptees because, uh, you know, if people don't know this, but the history after the Korean War was um, the, um, a lot of the Lutheran church went over to help find placement for a lot of um, children who now didn't have parents. And in where there's large pockets of Lutherans in the United States, like Minnesota, which I lived in. There's also a lot of Korean adoptees. And then in New York City, I ended up meeting someone who was also from uh, Minnesota, from Shakopee. And uh, I became friends with them and they introduced me to their friends, which were, it was a network of Korean adoptees. So, and I was uh, not scared of that. Um, it, and it was interesting to me because it was like people dealing with that sense of identity, who am I? Where do I fall into this world? Um, I'm not quote unquote part of the the status quo. And so I kind of transferred some of my um gay identity with them because I there was just a certain amount of the New York gay identity that just scared me just a little bit. I mean, club life, you know, drugs and uh I just, uh, I, you know, I was still living paycheck to paycheck, you know, it's like, where do you kids get this money, you know, for these drugs? And then you end up finding out, oh, oh, you actually are, cr you know, crashing on people's couches. <laughs> like, oh, that's the reason why you can live this lifestyle. Okay. And of course, I learned through a lot of these guys that they didn't have the fortune of the type of background that I had in terms of, I mean, I'll credit my mother. You know, I mean, I love both of my parents, but my mother was always the one there to be like, you're special. We don't know right now if you're gay or not, even though she probably knew, but you're special, you're unique, and uh, there's a place for you in this world. So, so, so she always made me feel balanced and everything's going to be all right. It's all going to, it's all going to be fine. Whereas some of these other guys that I would meet... They didn't have any of that type of background with their parents. And so they were just constantly sort of living through trauma. And then they're bringing their trauma to the dance floor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, and there were times when my mom would come to New York City. And, of course, this is after the divorce. So, you know, mom wants to sort of, like, live it up in a way that I've never seen my mom want to live it up. My mom was, <laughs> you know, a very conservative woman. I mean, not, like, politically, but just, like, uh, you know, I didn't ever see her drink or smoke or 
much less swear. And I even remember the times in my upbringing when she swore and what she said and what word it was and how she was standing when she said that word. And now she's like in New York City and she's like, take me to where you go on a Friday night. And I'm like, I'm not going to take you where I'm going to go on a Friday night. She's like, no, take me. Come on, let's do it. And then she'd pop out a cigarette and like, oh, God, mother is now Olivia Newton-John um, in the end part of Greece, not the beginning part where she's Sandy. Now she's like, you know, you know, come on, Joe or whatever. And you want to give it a go? Get you, get you, gaga. Um, now she's Creole lady mama lad. So, um, yeah, she wants to experience like what it is my life is like on a Friday night. And so I'm like, okay, fine, I'll take you to places. And I remember this one night I took her to this bar called The Monster. And it's in um, the village. And it's one of the older um, gay bars. And it has a Latino vibe to it. And yeah, there would be guys that would see her and know that she was a mature woman. Probably a woman who had children. And at first I'd see like a little bit of like Snickers, like uh, not the candy bar, but like, you know, snickering and uh, looking at her like, you know, what the hell is she doing here? And then one of them would feel challenged to, um, you know, go up and talk to her. And here I'm like, oh, my God, now I have to, like, defend my mom in a gay bar. Like, what is going to happen? Is this going to turn into a cat fight? Like, what is going to happen? Are wigs going to be flying? Like, what is going to happen? And then the next thing I would know is that someone would start talking to her and then they'd start crying. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in a gay bar with my mom and this guy is talking to her and now he's completely crying. And come to find out, like, these guys would be telling my mom, you know, that their mother, more than anything, they wish accepted them and didn't. And this happened more than once. So I'm like, it ended up becoming a thing that I would be expecting. If I take my mom out to a gay bar, there's going to be some gay guy who's going to come up to her, going to read her for filth. But then within like 45 seconds, we'll be bursting into tears telling me, I wish you were my mother. And so, you know, it feel it would be a little weird because I would be like, um, oh, yeah, see this guy at the end of the bar. He's kind of hot. And then he'd be coming towards me, but he's really coming to me to get to my mother because then he wants to confess you know his childhood to her and now he's crying with her and then like now i'm getting looked over and it's like i did not expect that my mother would be taking my potential lovers at the gay bar but um yeah so overall your transition <laughs> is you know it's still evolving it's evolving it's it's been you know positives for the most part well yeah yeah i mean you know it's something because it's like i grew up in a time where there was the tv talk shows right i mean you you grew up in the same this same time yeah. and the tv talk shows on the networks um were you know they'd always have to have a, a topic of discussion and they'd start to talk about gay issues more and then you had someone like Madonna. And then like in the, I'd say the early 90s, you know, you had all these movies that were coming out, whether it was Basic Instinct or Wild Things, that now all these different films are either dealing with homosexuality or bisexuality. And so when this ends up becoming a topic in um, popular culture, not a subculture, but the popular culture, the, the mainstream consumerism, 
you know, and then of course there was shows like Will and Grace. Um, I just start to think, wow, this is um, acceptance is happening. You know, it's becoming uh, more acceptable. It's becoming more freeing. Um, one doesn't have to walk around on eggshells. And uh, and especially being, you know, in New York City, where I, you know, initially felt like everything would be safer. I mean, it's very strange. Like, I went to New York City to feel safer. <laughs> you know, like that, that's not usually the way most people would think about it. But um, yeah, that's what I, I did. And, um, and now... It's just interesting to me because then you look at today and the kids of today and now they grew up with the Internet and it's like a whole new world. And it's to me, it's like very kind of scary, but I figure we all as human beings have to sort of, I guess, go through this in our, I guess, evolution of who it is that we are. But I do like the window of the time that I grew up because I felt there was ways of finding yourself, you know, I could fall into music. I could fall into popular culture. I could, um, the library, I could go to the library. I could use the Dewey decimal system. I could go over to, you know, the file cards and then look up the word homo. Well, usually <laughs> it's followed by homosexual. And then I could find books on, you know, like, Greek mythology, Roman history, and then even like Freud and psychology. And so I was like, you know, I was finding my groove even in Montana. I was like doing papers on human sexuality. I was discovering who Camille um, Paglia is and, you know, different authors talking about, you know, human sexuality. And so uh, about with today's young people, they have this thing called the internet, which things aren't verified. Everything is out there. You can go on Twitter. You can find all sorts of just crazy crap. I mean, people tend to forget that like, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, like they have the FCC. And um, if anything is too pornographic or too suggestive, you know, uh, they get the networks get fined. I mean, I think people can still remember Janet Jackson's nipple at the Super Bowl. Like that was a big deal. The nipple, the nipple at the Super Bowl, big deal, the nipple. And, and, and what do we have now? You can just go on Twitter and you can find, you know, all sorts right. of shenanigans. So I think what we're going to do is mm. I think we need to have a whole nother session, mm. probably have several sessions, but mm. I think we're going to, I'm going to have you back and then okay. we're going to talk more in depth about um, gay today versus gay yesterday. And, yeah. you know, some of the, some of the issues that's going, that are going on there. And then. Um, and how maybe we survive it or we how, don't. And how we survive it or don't. So <laughs> I just want to thank you for being on and finally coming on the podcast and hopefully we can um we can uh, I, I i say we i don't know hopefully i can get you back again like uh, i don't know tomorrow <laughs> but can you do one favor for me as you go and you put this all together just throw in a throw in a laugh track every once in a while just throw in studio audience okay. clapping okay. just okay. random can, studio audience clapping i will do that
You have been listening to the Making of a Diva podcast. If you would like to share thoughts on today's show, please submit a comment if the podcast platform you have has a comment section. Go to ericasherrick.com to submit a comment or send an email to ericasherrick at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.